The sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 24, and I'll be reading through verse 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and beheld, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offering, excuse me, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. I imagine that some of you are probably wondering, what kind of story is this? I mean, he's prayed and prayed and waited and waited and waited for a son. God finally gives him the son, and then God calls him to give the son up, in fact, by his own hand. I mean, it almost seems, you know, some people read this passage and they really begin to wonder about God. It's troubling. It's distressing. I mean, is it, uh, is God advocating child sacrifice? I mean, is he suspending his own ethical, his own ethical rules? Is he, 
Is this a, some people think it's tantamount to, tantamount to child abuse. I mean, people have taken this. For example, Brent Ehrman, a um, theologian over at UNC, he wrote that, uh, he says, suffering comes as a test from God simply to see if his followers will obey is illustrated more clearly and more horribly in the offering of Isaac. Or in the Chicago, in the Chicago Tribune uh, back in 2007, uh, she writes that the story of Abraham obeying God, offering up Isaac is troubling. It's, it's a hard sell. What do we do with it? Well, you know, when you, when you hear the story read to you, there's a certain beauty that comes to us in the story. It, it, it's, there's less dialogue in this passage than the passages we've read. And many think that the lack of dialogue is that you might ponder more deeply what it would be like for Abraham and Isaac to take that three-day journey, to ascend the hill, to consider what will he do? Will he obey? Will he trust God? <clears throat> What's he going to do? This is his greatest test. We're meant to watch this as it kind of unfolds. What will he do? Uh, what we see here is it's not simply, though, about Abraham and his testing. It really has much to do with God. Notice it's God who is the one who is testing. It's God who is the one who's providing. And it's going to be God who is the one who rewards him with this reaffirmation of the promises. So it's, it's really more about God. Now, we see Abraham walk out life in it. And in that, we're to see our own school of faith. How does God test us? How does God provide for us? How does God lead us? And so what we're going to do is we're going to see how God tests. We're going to see how God provides and how God rewards. So uh, look with me just at the first two verses again. We're going to see how God tests his people to develop their faith. <clears throat> it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a, a burnt offering after one of the, um, um, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So think about this with me. So he says, after these things, after what things? Well, for sure, it's after the tension between Isaac and Ishmael. But, but I think there's more than that. After these things would probably be after all the events of his life. Listen, Abraham's been walking with God a long time. It started back in Genesis chapter 12, years and years and years ago. After these things, there's only a couple events left in Abraham's life before he dies. That is the death of Sarah, and that's going to be the seeking of a wife for Isaac, and then, I, then Abraham dies. So we're at the end of his life. This is the final and greatest test for, for Abraham. What's he going to do? Now, we know it's a test because we're reading it. Moses, the narrator, informs us it's a test. Abraham doesn't know that. So Abraham is just responding to God. He doesn't know it's a test. So we're seeing him walk out this in a real-life situation. Moses is trying to immediately help us not misconstrue what God's doing. God is not advocating child sacrifice. He's helping us to not get all tangled up in the moral complexities of what's God doing? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is this, is this, is this, a, is this moral evil? So he's taking us out of that so we can learn, that we can watch 
we can see how God moves among his people, that we might profit by it. So the question is, it's a test. We're left reading the story uh, from Moses saying, well, will he obey? I mean, is he going to follow through with God? Is he going to trust God really to provide, as he says? <clears throat> I mean, you think about it for a minute. Can you imagine what Abraham's facing? Offer up your son as an offering. So what do you do with an offering? Well, you slit the throat, you cut it into pieces, you put it on an altar, and then you burn it. Is that what he's asking me? I mean, can you imagine the severity of the test? And notice how, notice how Moses records it. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I mean, it's like blows of a hammer. Your son, you haven't had one in all these years. By the way, it's your only son. So Ishmael, well, there's no backup plan. If we lose Isaac, we're torched. There's no backup plan. It's your only son. His name's Isaac. So there's that person, the one you really love. I mean, you feel 10 times in this passage, he reminds Abraham that it's his son. As if to remind him, he hasn't had a son, he hasn't had a son, and now he does, and now he has to offer him back up to God. Can you imagine the confusion of what it would be like to obey God? You know, it, it seems contrary to the character of God. It seems contrary uh, to the natural affections of a father. It seems contrary to the very purpose that G Isaac was given, because through him the blessings would come to the world. Now remember, blessings aren't, hey, it's going to be a great Sunday. The blessings are the undoing of the curses back in chapter 3. So Abraham knows that through his son is going to come the Savior of the world, the one that brings us back to be with God, the one that brings us back into Eden. So it's not just, it's not just Abraham's hopes. It's the hopes of the world are riding on that child who now is being called, Abraham's being called by God to offer this child back up. So, so you, you can feel the, the weight of this. There is no other plan. John Calvin, in his commentaries, he says, in this person of his son, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and to perish. So that, that's the test before him. Now, if we're going to understand this story, we have to understand the nature of tests, right? God does test his people. That's clear in scripture. We see it. God tested Abraham. God's not tempting Abraham. James tells us that he doesn't tempt any of us to sin. God's not punishing Abraham. This isn't a punishment. Why, God, are you punishing me? This is not a punishment from God. God is testing him. He's testing him to reveal to him what is really in his heart. You know, Deuteronomy gives us wisdom on this because he tested Israel following Deuteronomy 8. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Testing is like the assaying of gold. You know, the saying process of assaying is is breaking its mineral, you know, a mineral down to find out the quality. So you take a hunk of gold, and, and you have to heat it hotter and hotter and hotter to discern what is it a fool's gold? Is it like a, a look-alike gold? Or you know, at 1,100 degrees Celsius, then you find out the true value of the gold. So it's the testing. We're all tested. 
We, we were tested. The church struggle we've had. It's been a time of testing for us. Uh, perhaps in your life, physical issues. It's a time of testing. A loss of a loved one. A financial insecurity. Difficulty in job. Relational struggles. God's pressing on us uh, that we might see what's inside. Uh, not for the purposes of crushing, but for the purposes of revealing, leading us. These are areas I'm growing in. I was, I was faithful in tests. These are areas I need to grow in. See, the testing of God is to develop in us strength. And that's Paul's takeaway when he, he expresses um, in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So Paul's being pressed upon. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So God will often test us so that we see that the props of this life, the temporal and the physical and the material props that we look to, they won't help. You have to turn to God. It's like when I was in an ICU room once with a, a person in the church, and um, the man kept asking the doctor, what else can you do? The person was dying. And uh, the doctor just said, I can't do anything for you. It, it, all the air went out of the room. There was so much hope in that doctor, all the air went out of the room. He said, the doctor actually said, do you need a pastor? And uh, I happened to be right there when he said it. But it's when all the props of life, uh, I can't do anything for you. Uh, God presses us so that we rely on him for life. So, so what tests are you in right now? And what are they revealing about your own faith? What's it reveal about your own need to know God? What's it revealing about the, the struggles here? Is God sufficient? Do you believe? Will you obey? It's the same kind of thing, really. You know, faith in Hebrews 11 is described for us. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. God is honored by our faith. When we're being tested, we're being pressed by life. Remember, God's sovereign. Things aren't just dropping into your life by happenstance. No, the Lord is, is creating his image to be perfected in you through these trials and through these tests. Are we being found faithful? Are we appealing to God? Are we reaching out to him? Will you trust him right now in whatever? So oftentimes, we don't have an altar call, but I'm calling you to faith right now. Do you believe? So, so that's what we see this test. Now, notice Abraham's response, right? As astounding as this test is, notice his obedience. Look with me at three to six. He says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Now, notice the difference here in Abraham. We're at the end of his life, right? Has he learned? Has he grown in faith? 
So you see that he gets this vision, he hears this word from God, and he gets up immediately the next morning. No deliberation, no delay, no discussion. He doesn't stop and talk with Sarah. He just gets the boy, he gets the men. Now this, you see his, his obedience is immediate, right? Now that's not to say it's a clinical obedience. We're just gonna do what he says to do. You, you can almost see the, the, the trouble on his soul. Notice the order of things. He gets his men, he saddles the donkey, then he cuts the wood. It's illogical. You don't saddle a donkey before you cut the wood. You don't want the, the donkey to be saddled for too long. It's a three-day journey. It, it, it's almost as if you can just imagine he's, he's walking out obedience. He's trying to follow God, and yet his heart is just being torn in a thousand different directions. So you can imagine the obedience. This isn't like a split-second obedience. He has to walk for three days. This is a protracted obedience. In fact, Calvin gives a word on this. He says, this test will not be passed by an impulse of obedience, but a sustained obedience over all the days. This is real obedience here. You, you see him walk it out. He's walking. He's trusting God. He's fighting for faith. And then, of course, you see him get to the, the mountain. And, and then he says to his servants, he says, you remain here with the donkey. Uh, he and I are going to go and worship and come to you again. Now, what's he doing here? I mean, is he, is he kind of deceiving the servants? You know, kind of keeping them in the dark about God's plan that we're really going to go up there and kill the boy? Well, no, I, I think he really believes it. Yeah, I think he has faith. He knows Isaac has to be the boy. He, he knows it's going to be through Isaac that Abraham's offspring, the seed of Abraham that will save the world, that one that will come from Abraham, he's got to come from Isaac, and Isaac has no son. So I, I think it's in faith. I think Abraham believes that he will kill the boy and that he will rise again. He, he'll have to raise him from the ash heap. And, and the writer of Hebrews helps us understand this. So you don't think I'm just really making a, a wide application here. He says in Hebrews, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. He was about to kill him, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, he knew that he would have to raise him from the dead because it was through Isaac. You see faith now come into full maturity. Abraham, remember the one that was up and down and all around, just like we feel? But over time and through life, you see it crystallizing into a firm faith in the power of God to raise him from the dead. And this is why you see him. Take the wood, put it on the back of Isaac. They go up to the mountain. And the silence is only broken by Isaac. Isaac says, again, you don't hear a lot of dialogue because we're supposed to be thinking about. Can you imagine the walk up the hill? I mean, what they were, what they were thinking about? And so Isaac breaks the silence and says, well, where's the sacrifice? And of course, Abraham in faith says, well, the Lord will provide. I don't know that Abraham knew how the Lord would provide, uh, but he knew he would do it. That's a picture of faith, by the way. Uh, faith is in the power of God to deliver, but we don't always know how he's going to do it. And so they get to the top of the mountain, and then the whole narrative kind of slows down, right? It goes, and, and he built the altar, 
And then he arranged the wood. And then he bound Isaac on the wood. And then he, then he raised the knife. It, it's like go, everything goes into slow motion here because we're supposed to be watching this. Now, I don't want you to miss this because what about Isaac? Isaac, what's up with Isaac? Is he walking by faith too? Now, he's called a boy, uh, but the, it's the same Hebrew word that was used for Ishmael in chapter 21, who was 17, 18, 16, 17, 18 years old. So he was probably a, a strapping young man. Now, you can't, uh, a lot of fathers, we always got the father factor, the dad factor, which means we can always tell our children we can still take care of them if we need to, even in our later years. But he's, he's well over 100 his son could easily outpower him or outrun him. It seems like Isaac consents to it, to be bound. He too is of faith, has to be. How would it be otherwise? Abraham speaking to him about his miraculous birth. Abraham speaking about the power of God delivering him from the eastern kings, uh, bringing life to the womb of his mother that was dead. God bringing, walking through the torn animals, God speaking to him, that he's explaining this to Isaac. And there they are, hand raised, about to be plunged into a son. And then, of course, that's when God speaks a second time. Abraham, Abraham, you, you sense the urgency. You're wondering, will he get to him in time? Of course he will. And that's when he says, don't lay your hand on the boy. And so you're brought to this point of incredible um, tension and yet now resolution. But you see in Abraham that he responded by faith. He obeyed. And you see the nature of obedience here for us to profit from. Obedience is costly. Listen, it's easy to obey when your job's going great, your marriage is perfect, you have plenty of money, your health is at the, at the prime, you're at the prime of life. It's easy to obey. It's easy to follow. It's hard when it costs. And it was a high cost for him, the cost of his only son. Our obedience should even trump our family connections. You know, Jesus picked up and said the same thing in, in Luke 14 when he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father and mother, your sister and your brother. Now, of course, he doesn't say you need to hate them literally because Jesus would affirm you honor your father and mother. But in terms of priority and proportion of love and obedience. So you see the costliness of the love. Uh, there is, though, I want you to see, um, there is a rationality to our obedience, even when it's costly. It does make sense. If you believe that God is who he is, like for Abraham, right? He, he knew God created all things. He saw the power of God in bringing forth destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. You, you saw, he knew that God took a womb, according to Hebrews eleven twelve. Her womb was dead, but he gave life to it. It's like a resurrection, isn't it? He, he raised life from her dead womb. He saw God do these things. If God is able to do these things, then we can step in and obey God when we don't have the money or when we don't have the abilities or when we don't have the, 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 the personal capacity. I can't do that. 
No, God's, God's beckoning us to come and obey. It makes sense if he's God. So when Carol and I were preparing to go overseas, um, we had two kids under two taking them to Austria to work with the refugees that were coming out of the you know, Eastern Bloc countries. And uh, people thought we were nuts. They thought we were crazy. What are you doing? You have two kids under two? How's your German? Not there. It, it, it was just, how about raising the money that you need? Not there. Well, you own a CPA practice, for goodness sake. Why don't you just work hard, you know, and support ministries? They thought we were, in German, Saruk. Just crazy, right? We were crazy. But, but there was a call for obedience that made sense to us. It wasn't like our faith was crystallized. I don't want you thinking, well, you just had more faith. It wasn't that. It just made sense if God is who he is that we can obey. What areas is God asking you to step out in faith? Is it to be more generous? Is it to step into maybe a ministry or maybe go on a mission trip this year, but you're just terrified of it? Maybe it's to to pray or, or share the gospel with a neighbor. I mean, what might, what have you feared? You've had that impulse of God's spirit. You've resisted because you didn't think you were capable. What would that be for you? You notice that his obedience wasn't just costly, and it was, I think, rational, uh, but, but it was also uh, fueled by the promises, wasn't it? I mean, the first act of obedience of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when he left his father's home, was based on the promises of God. The promises of God come, and then the obedience comes. Uh, you see the promises that you're going to be a nation, you're going to be a great nation, you're going to have a land, you're going to have a people, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. All the obedience of Abraham came after the promises of God. So, so God gives the promises to us, and then we're called to trust in those promises and then obey as he leads. So obedience is always fueled from the promises. His obedience of urgency, of, of leaving to go to Mount Moriah, his willingness to take the three days to go up to the mountain, those are all fueled by the promises of God. Now, I don't want to separate the promises from the person of God, right? Uh, we tend to believe the promises once we know the person. So we don't want to separate. They're one and the same. And so he believes based upon the promises. In, in fact, we can even engage in costly obedience because we know his goodness. Blaise Pascal said these words, he says, there is some pleasure in being on board a ship battered by storms when one is certain of not perishing. Think about what he's saying here. There's a certain incredible joy to even be battered by storm because we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And so you almost get to enjoy the power of the storm and the challenge because we're going to be okay. God is calling us to obedience. And he's saying, you're going to be okay. You will be able to do that. I will give you the strength to do that. I, I'm calling you to obey me. So, so you, you see here, he's, he's calling for us to obey because he will give us all that we need. You know, many of you know that, or perhaps you know, uh, but Myrtle Huddleston was a woman 
uh, 34 years old at the time, who in uh, 1952 was the first woman to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California to California. It's a 34-mile journey a swim. And uh, the first time she did it, she was swimming and she was making it, but it was a dense fog the whole time. Fog was so great you couldn't almost see the boats kind of accompanying her as she swam. And uh, she began to fatigue and wanted to get out of the water. Her mother was in one of the boats saying, no, you're close, you're close, just keep swimming. But the fog was so thick you couldn't even see the boats around her. And she got out of the water. And she was only a mile from shore. Only a mile from shore. So two months later, she tried it again. But this time it was different. She had the, she had the vision of the shore in her mind, the picture of where. And, and that was in her mind the whole time. And so even though the fog was just as bad, she made it in two hours shorter amount of time. Because she had the goal in mind. She knew what she was. If we don't know the promises of God and the character of God, uh, then we're going to waver in obedience. We're going to waver in perseverance. But when you know the promises, God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He said that don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. Your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. How much more important are you? If not one sparrow falls, how much more important? Do you see the, the strength to obey comes from the promises that God has given to us? So we see God tests to draw us into deeper obedience based upon his promises. And then we see, secondly, that the Lord does provide. You see this with, look with me at 13 and 14. He says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So it's interesting here. Here's, he's about to bring forth the knife upon his son in obedience to God. Uh, God then calls him to stop. And at the same time, he lifts his eyes from his son and he looks and sees this ram, this lamb caught in a thicket. And then, of course, we read that he goes there and he slaughters the lamb and offers it instead of Isaac. So I want you to catch that substitution. Instead of Isaac dying, the lamb is dying. So what does the Lord provide? Well, the Lord provides for Isaac life, but it's through the death of the lamb. So Isaac is spared, the lamb is not. Isaac lives, the lamb does not. I mean, can you imagine that day? Just for a moment, just envision you hear the voice say, Abraham, Abraham. And then, and then they see the lamb right there. I mean, Isaac, his name's laughter. Can you not imagine them laughing? Look at what the Lord provided. So glad I obeyed. Look at how he, look at how he came through. And then, and then the flames are consuming that animal. Can you imagine their worship? I mean, father and son seeing the glory of God provide for them as they acted in obedience. But let's go even further. It had to be incredible, sweet time of worship. Worship is to be joyful. I mean, think of all the Lord's provided for us. But think about what the people of Israel would have heard. Because, you know, Moses is recording this. He's writing it down. And so he's explaining to them about this process of the lamb is going to die instead of 
the person. So then you have Moses give in Leviticus the sacrificial system where the priest puts his hand on the, the animal and the animal dies. And we know in Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, that the temple was built on this mount. So year after year after year, the blood would be spilt, the lambs would die, the people would live. I mean, can you not imagine what they are learning? So it's, he dies in place of May. So it's not lost on John the Baptist when he sees Jesus Christ coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world? It's not lost on He's the, he's the lamb. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the one that came forth from Abraham. He's the perfect lamb. And of course, Jesus gives the same word in John 3, 16. He says, for God did not spare his own son, but offered up for us all, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. So his only son, he's drawing the language from God in this chapter. His only son, he, he wasn't spared. Right? Isaac was spared. Uh, the lamb wasn't. Jesus wasn't spared. God didn't spare his own son. I mean, is this, do you see that God has made provision for us always to be obedient to him? Do you see that God has taken our greatest need and has met it? Now, if I were to ask you before this sermon, if I were to say, what is your greatest need? What would you say to me? Would, you, would it be something material? Would it be something physical? Would it be something financial? What's your greatest need? Because a lot of times that's the first thing that comes to our minds. I would want us to be thinking, my greatest need is, why am I here? What's my purpose in living? What happens when I die? What's the value of life? Who created me? You know, those are the bigger needs to have met. And we see that God has met that need in his son. So if you want to find yourself, my greatest need is not just being here, but how do I relate to my creator? And, and, and am I in good shape or am, am I at odds with him? And the scriptures speak to us being alienated, separated from God. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to the one who's given us life. It's like cutting off a branch from a tree and leaving it there and waiting for it to grow. It, do, it won't grow. It has to be reunited to that which gives it life. That, that's, we have to be brought back into relationship with God to live. This is, if you want to see yourself in the story, why don't you see yourself as Isaac? Not Abraham for a minute, just Isaac. You need a sacrifice. You need a substitute. You need one to die for you. In fact, Jesus, when he spoke to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 58, he says, uh, John eight fifty six. he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Abraham saw the day. The day that he rejoiced over was the day where he saw God's provision for the salvation of Isaac and the salvation of the world. So do you see that God has provided for, but he provides for all of your needs. I mean, whatever needs you're being pressed right now, you know, the, the, even the draw that God has in terms of calling you to obey, he will provide for you. I think Paul used this passage as well when he said in Romans 8, he said that he who did not spare his own son, 
again, your own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also, not along with him, graciously, what? Provide for us. He is a providing God. What is he asking you to do? How is he? Will you trust him right now? Will you believe in him? Will you appeal to him? Will you look to him in whatever issue you're struggling with? Will you look to him for help, direct help that will deliver you? And will it lead you to laughter and joy? Will it lead you, even in the midst of trouble, we can be happy people because we have a God who provides. It was interesting when we were in, uh, in Austria, we couldn't find a place to live. And we were in a person's house that was coming back from furlough and we had to get out. I had two kids, Carol, and we had no place. I was literally going around towns, knocking on doors. Do you have a place to live? Do you have a place to live? And I was saying, Lord, you gotta provide for us. We have to have a place to live. And nobody, and I was doing it all in German, so I was getting the funniest looks. I'd only been there a couple months. So, so I, I finally, I was driving down the road and I just saw this gas station and we just stopped on the side of the road. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll even ask the gas station attendant. We need, God, you gotta provide. So I walk in there. Some of you know this story. I walk in there and uh, in German, ask him about, a, do, is there any place to live around here? And in perfect English with a Baltimore accent, he <laughs> speaks to me. And I'm like thinking, you know, what world am I in? And he picks up the phone, he makes a call, he gets an apartment, and we move in. It's a flat, and uh, the people upstairs we meet, she ends up coming to faith. How does God do that stuff? He just provides. So he calls us to trust, to follow, to obey to do the hard things because he's a God for whom nothing is impossible. So you see, God is testing us, but he provides for us. And then notice how he rewards us. Look with me at 16 to 18, or 16 to 19. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. I will say this, by the way. I went back to try to thank that man. Never found him again. He was gone. I don't know where he went. I'm not saying he's some angel or anything. I'm just saying he was gone. I could never even thank the man. That's how God provides and then pulls him out. So, so, so you, you see here that he rewards. Notice he says, I swear by myself. This is the only time in Genesis that you see God swearing, making a divine oath on himself. There's no, there's no one else to swear to. If you want to establish some credibility by making a promise, what do you say? I swear by my mother. I swear by God. You always swear by somebody more than yourself. God has no one higher to swear by. And so he swears by himself. He is giving absolute confirmation to Abraham that you will be a blessing to the nations and a great nation. But here's what I want you to see about the promise. It it's not simply that Israel will, will exist in the Middle East. 
you know, that he'll have a descendant and he'll be a great nation. And the great nation will be a blessing to the nations. Abraham was looking beyond the physical answer to this promise. Do you notice the language in these promises is creational language? It's creational. It's, it's what he said to Adam, what he said to Eve. You're going to have a seed, and you're going to have a land, Eden, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations, the descendants. They're all going to come and worship God. So this promise wasn't fulfilled in the coming together of the nation of Israel. No, it, it's fulfilled in Christ now, bringing forth a people, the nations gathering. This is why when Jesus Christ was born, who were some of the first visitors? Magi. Who were they? Gentiles. They were men from the east. They were the nations coming to worship the seed of Abraham because he's come to constitute a new people in a new land. He's speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, Israel was a picture of what God has promised to do. Because remember, the promises given to, to Adam, the promise given to Noah, the promise given to, to Abraham, it's about the restoration of all things. So you see here that this isn't just about preserving Isaac, but preserving Isaac who will have a seed and the seed will bring forth the son and the son will be the Messiah, that suffering servant. Is it, is it surprised to you that when you think of Jesus, he's referenced in Isaiah 53 in the servant passage. In Isaiah 53, 7, he says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, a sheep before its shears. You have that lamb imagery again, that Jesus Christ, this promise to us. So, so God is calling, he's testing us, he will provide for us, and he's promising us that what it is about this life is not this life. He has something much better for us. That's why, that's why we obey always with an eye to that final day. We want to make decisions today based upon that day. So it will lead us to even rejoice in this life. So let's consider the greatness of God here. He is a good God. We can be a happy people. Even though he will put us in situations that may test our mettle, he will provide for us. And he will provide for us not just in the test, uh, but he's going to provide for us this new heaven. He wants us looking forward. He wants us seeing that these tests have eternal weight. That's why Paul says, I don't even consider the suffering, the present sufferings of this life. He says, they're achieving for me an eternal weight of glory. The testing now produces the glory then. That's what we want to look forward to. It's amazing, I'm preaching and I got those numbers counting up as I'm preaching and there's this implied pressure. You <laughs> gotta get used to that. Didn't, it, didn't, it didn't speed me up, I'll just say that to you. <laughs> well, let's take a moment and let's thank God for his provision, his goodness, his kindness. People, I'm calling you to faith. But what, what, not, just, not just faith to believe. For those of you who are not in Christ, I, I am calling you uh, that that trusting in God, who has given for us a savior, one who is in your stead. That's how you become a Christian. Uh, but most of you here I know are Christian, but, but I know that you're struggling with a variety of issues. And obedience and the impulse of God's spirit's gonna come to you this week and he's gonna call you. And, and, and the spirit's gonna call you to obedience. And I want you to remember, he provides. 
So I'm going to walk in obedience. And I tell you, it's going to create a snowball effect in your soul. So let's, and so next week, let's by faith trust that God will give us events that we can share with one another to encourage each other over how God provided for us this week. And let's rejoice in him. So let's take a moment and ask him for these things now in silence, and I'll pray for us in a moment.